Okay, so we're on chapter 10, which is page 122. <coughs> Just a quick recap. Where are we holding here? In our last discussion, you know, in our earlier discussions, we were elaborating on the difference between the animal soul and the divine soul, their different qualities, and how that impacts us. The decisions that we have to make is not so much how am I going to behave, but it's really who I am, because I have these very two different identities. And in chapter 9, we really got deep into the actual struggle between these two identities. The divine soul, we said, is primarily in the mind and on the right side of the heart. The animal soul is primarily in the heart. It's primarily emotional. So we really have this whole, our inner struggle really boils down to, am I justifying my impulses or am I guiding my impulses? If I'm justifying my impulses, that means my animal soul, my impulse, my heart is in control and it's controlling my mind because I'm trying to justify them and make sure they're okay. So it's controlling my animal soul, which is in the, my, my divine soul, which is in the mind. If I guide my impulses, um, by the way, my internet is a little bit choppy, so if at any point you guys don't hear me, let me know, and I'll, I'll repeat. Um, if I guide my impulses, that means my mind is in control of my heart, which means my divine soul is in control. Now, for Abenini, which is the in-betweener whom the Tanya is addressing, which we'll elaborate more in chapter 12, he has enough mind control to control his impulses, so he behaves properly, but the impulses are still there. He still has the impulse to evil. The Russia will actually do the evil. The Bainini says, I'm not going to do it, but I still feel it. Don't want to sin. and I'm not going to sin, but I still want to sin. That's the Bainini. The Tzaddik, who we're going to be discussing in our chapter, doesn't even want to sin. Not only does he not sin, he doesn't even have that impulse to sin. And here's what he says. A tzaddik took this verse, literally. Let's take a look on top of 123. The first bold paragraph. Um, or it's really just one line. It's one bold line. As the verse states, as a verse from Deuteronomy, and you shall eliminate the evil from your midst. The literal um, explanation of the, of the verse, if you look in the Torah, if you look in the context, it's referring to false prophets. The Torah says that we cannot follow false prophets. And the way we know if a prophet is false is if they tell us to do something that is contrary to Torah. So now that, pro you know, if a prophet gets up and says, God just told me everybody must eat pork. So there's a good chance that that's not a real prophet. And the Torah says, we shall eliminate evil, referring to that prophet from your midst. But if you take that verse out of context and translate it literally, remove the evil from your midst, from yourself, the evil within ourselves. A tzaddik totally eradicated the evil from within him, the animal soul. A tzaddik was totally able to do that, 100%. 
in other words, a tzaddik is somebody who totally internalizes the divine soul. Most of us, regular folk, we've internalized the animal soul. That's natural. That's kind of what we're born into. And we try to glean inspiration from the divine soul. But the tzaddik is the other way around. He is the divine soul. And he's got rid of that animal soul. And, you know, the great sage Hillel from the Talmud. Remember the Hillel sandwich not too long ago? The great sage Hillel used to say, I'm going to do my body a favor. And he would go eat. Because <laughs> he wasn't the body. He was a soul. He had a body. But the way we see ourselves by nature is we're a body. You know, we go by what we see, which is the nature of klipa, looking at the shell, at the peel, not at the fruit inside the peel, right? We go by what we see. We're a body, and we have some sort of soul that we're trying to access. But that's not the case with the tzaddik. The tzaddik has totally internalized the soul, totally internalized the, the, animal, the, the divine soul, to the point that there is no room for the animal soul. That impulse to evil doesn't exist in him. Which is why, by the way, a tzaddik, a real tzaddik, sees totally sees only good in people the way you know somebody's a tzaddik is all they see is good in others and who where do you find these tzaddiks i mean it's good really question. hard to find i mean it sounds like you're talking about perfection and uh where do you find perfection i mean there's imperfections i would think in everybody maybe not in biblical times when good, question. good question good question it's Good question. It's very, it's rare. And our goal is not even to become a tzaddik. That's not our goal here. At least not yet. <laughs> um, that's not, and what happens is if we set our goal, we'll talk about this more in chapter 27. If we have unreasonable expectations of ourselves, we end up disappointing ourselves and beating ourselves up. And the whole point of understanding what a tzaddik is, is to know, is, is so we can have realistic expectations, realize that's not for me where I'm holding right now in my life. Like, abandoning, the difference between abandoning and the tzaddik, abandoning has behavioral perfection, but he still has the impulse for negativity. The tzaddik certainly has behavioral perfection, but even has inner perfection as well. Now, we don't have that, and that's not our goal, but it's still important to know what it is. So we can contrast and understand what Abedini is, understand what Russia is, and we can know where we fall and how we need to progress in our relationship with God and our relationship with people. Um, the Talmud says that there were very few tzaddikim, and that's why God had to spread them out all over the generations, spread them thin, because there aren't, it's, it is very, it's not common. But would you find tzaddiks, I mean, it wouldn't be used, they wouldn't use this word, but certainly in other religions and in other walks of life, there have been tzaddiks, even though they probably don't call them that. Right. So very often the, the term tzaddik is misused. You know, the, the, old, the, the, the Yiddish mama says, my little boy chick is a tzaddikal, right? <laughs> it's not necessarily used in the literal sense. And that's fine. That's totally fine. And, and, and like we discussed earlier, in certain contexts, a tzaddik might mean more good deeds than bad deeds. And in the context of reward and punishment, that's true. But in terms of the actual definition, a tzaddik is total perfection. But there are two types of tzaddiks. 
discussed in our chapter. There's the complete tzaddik and there's the incomplete tzaddik. The difference between the two. Anyone? Uh, yeah, one was able to uh, totally eliminate any thoughts of evil and the other one never has any thoughts of evil. Okay, good. Good. So the difference between the two levels of tzaddik is they both don't certainly don't do evil. They both don't feel the impulse to evil. But for one of them, the impulse of evil is still there. It's just inactive. And for the complete tzaddik, that, to that impulse to evil has actually been transformed. So, if we look on... Let's take a look on page uh, 122. We'll read, I'll, we'll read from the beginning of the chapter. And I'll, I'll read it quickly. <clears throat> When a person strengthens the influence of his divine soul, I'm on the bottom of the page, when a person strengthens the influence of his divine soul and wages war against the animal soul, to the extent that he manages to expel and eliminate its evil from the left chamber of his heart, he's now a tzaddik. So if I managed to prevail my, my divine soul over my animal soul to the extent that that evil is totally left, so now I'm a tzaddik. Now I'm going to jump to 123, the second bold paragraph. Starts with the word yet. Do you see it? Uh -huh. Yet, if the individual has achieved an impressive degree of self-mastery, but the evil has not been completely transformed to good, he's classified as an incomplete tzaddik or a tzaddik who has bad. Who, he's not bad, but he has some bad within him. So the, the lower level of a tzaddik, Let's start with the higher level of a tzaddik. The higher level of a tzaddik kind of has two divine souls because he transformed his animal soul. He didn't, he didn't just stop his animal soul. He transformed it. The, the lower level of a tzaddik stopped his animal soul. Didn't transform it yet. Now here's something interesting. The second level of tzaddik, the lower level of the tzaddik, has many different levels. So it's not really so black and white. We're speaking more in general terms, but if you jump to page 127 on the top, the top in the English, the first bold paragraph. Now this status, now this status of the incomplete tzaddik is subdivided into tens of thousands of levels, depending on the precise nature, both qualitatively and quantitatively, quantitatively, sorry, of the minuscule evil that remains in him. So because an incomplete tzaddik still has a little bit of evil, it's just inactive, there's going to be myriads and myriads of levels. Um, so it's, it's definitely, a tzaddik will still have room for growth depending on the type of tzaddik, definitely if he's an, if he's an incomplete tzaddik, um, he'll still have room for growth. The way it works for a tzaddik, in general, whether complete or incomplete, because his main identity is the divine soul, the animal soul is either irrelevant or non-existent, he doesn't really take pleasure um, in this world in the same way that we do. You know, we, we 
for us regular people, and myself included, we have a book of Torah and we have a slice of pizza. And we may go for the book of Torah, but the slice of pizza is going, what's going to excite us more? What's, gonna get, what, what's getting me out of bed? A right? cup of coffee. The cup of coffee, right? <laughs> now, the best would be to merge the two. The cup of coffee will motivate me to study the Torah. So you're merging both and you're elevating the cup of coffee. But before I get to that point, what excites me? What gets my heart going? Often it's the pizza, the milkshake, the coffee, more than the Talmud, the Chumash, the Tanya, or the act of giving charity, or whatever it may be. I'm just giving examples. These are all just examples, and we all have our own examples in our own lives. But the Tzaddik, he's so passionate. He's so, he, he has internalized the divine soul. It's not something that is abstract to him. It's not just an idea. It's his identity. And because that's his real identity, he's more excited about spiritual things, about meaningful things than things that are more self-oriented. Uh, a question. Does yeah. the term tzaddik apply to men only? No. Okay. No. Um, grammatically it does, but, but in concept it does not. Grammatically you would say it's tzaddiket. Okay. But, but the concept definitely applies equally to men and women. 100%. 100%. In Hebrew, it's kind of hard because you have to kind of, <laughs> grammatically, you got to pick a side. Um, Can you name somebody that in history, in Jewish history, that you would consider a female tzaddik? Yeah, 100%. I mean, look, you had women who were prophets. You had Miriam. Deborah. You had Deborah. Yeah, Deborah, Deborah. Okay. Uh, 100%. And you, you have in, in modern history as well. Um, you know, the way people describe their encounter with the, the Lubavitcher of his wife, for example. Um, you know, the, the way, the, again, the sign that somebody is a tzaddik, and, and again, it's not our job to judge people and start deciding who's who. But if you want to know if somebody is a tzaddik, a real tzaddik sees either good in somebody or at least potential in somebody. That doesn't mean that they are naive to the evil, to the negativity. But that's not their focus. That's not their... And, and, and the truth is, the more we work on ourselves to internalize our soul, we're not going to do it to the extent that a tzaddik can, but we can do it to, a, to the extent that we can as individuals, the more we'll see that soul within others. And we'll talk about more of this idea uh, later in chapter 32 where the Tanya elaborates on that concept in greater depth a tzaddik the more the tzaddik loves God which means the more he's internalized his divine soul the less excited he is about things that are more self-oriented the less, less he is excited about himself because essentially getting excited about the pizza means we're excited about ourselves, which is totally normal. We all have that. This is the human condition. And this is the great debate between um, Freud and um, Frankel. You know, what excites a person? Themselves or something deeper, right? 
And the Tanya would concede to both sides, depending which soul, <laughs> depending on which soul we were, were we internalized. The Tzaddik has internalized the divine soul. He's less excited about himself, but more excited about his mission, his purpose, about a greater depth to life. We can glean some of that excitement to an extent, but not to the point that a tzaddik. A tzaddik is so excited about this, there's no room for the animal soul. To the point that it's either irrelevant or non-existent. Make sense? Mm-hmm. Now, although we cannot become, although we don't necessarily have the potential to be a tzaddik, and until we've mastered Bainani, which is behavioral perfection, we're not getting to the tzaddik level yet. However, we can have tzaddik areas. We can have areas where we're a tzaddik. So I'll give you an example. Personally, uh, I'm going to stop the recording for a second. No, I'm kidding. But I'll tell you, in a per- I am no tzaddik. I'll tell you that. I definitely have an evil inclination. However, I have no interest in eating pork. <laughs> Whether it be because I haven't been exposed to it or whatever it is, but I have no interest at all. In fact, because pork is prohibited, I'm just appalled by it almost because like, ew. So am I a tzaddik? No. In that area, can I be considered a tzaddik? Perhaps, if my motivation to not eat pork is God, maybe. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. In other words, can we become a tzaddik and learn in the larger scheme of things, totally internalize the divine soul? No. But in certain areas of our life, in that area, we've totally worked on ourselves, mastered the divine soul, um, internalized it, and now I have no um, feeling for negativity in that area. Maybe I'll have an impulse for other things. Question? I have a question. Um, Would you say that it is a goal for people that follow the Chabad way of life to be a tzaddik in as many areas as possible? Is that something that you strive to do through study, through practice? Um, That's a good question. I don't know. I don't know. If a person has that potential, it really, it, in a sense, it kind of is individualized. You know, there's no prohibition. There's no overt prohibition against wanting to eat pork. There's a prohibition against eating the pork. And it's the same with all the prohibitions. God doesn't tell you, you're not allowed to, bless you, you're not allowed to want to sin. God says don't sin. Or And God also does you know, but... In terms of our emotional relationship with God, it would be nice if we, you know, in any emotional relationship, in a, in, you know, in a marital relationship, it would be nice, you know, if there's something a spouse doesn't like us doing, not only we stop it, but we don't even want to do it because it bothers them. It would, it would be a nice thing for the relationship. Um, does that make sense? So it's kind of individualized because we all have our own, in a sense, personal relation. Behaviorally, we all have a similar relationship with God. We're all going to keep kosher. We're all going to light the Shabbos candles, but emotionally it's going to be different for each of us. Make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. I'll tell you something interesting. 
We've been discussing, we touched upon this earlier a little bit. We've been discussing the two souls. And there actually is a third soul. And it's alluded to in this chapter, the beginning of this chapter. Because look, let's take a look at what he says. Page 122. I'll go back to the bottom, the part that we read already. And I'll read it again quickly. The bottom of page uh, 122, the bold paragraph. Now when a person strengthens the influence of his divine soul and wages war against the animal soul, to the extent that he manages to expel and eliminate its evil from the left chamber of his heart, he's now a tzaddik. So think about that. A person strengthens the influence of the divine soul and wages war against the animal soul. Who's the person? If the animal soul and the divine soul are, are influences that we need to internalize, then who's the me? Who's the person? Make sense? Right. Who's that person? Well, you could either think of it as a third soul, or you could think of it as the body or the mind. Right. Either way. Right, exactly. That's the third soul alluded to in Tanya, which is the mind. It's called the intellectual soul. Tanya does not overtly mention that soul. And the reason is, as expressed in this one paragraph here, because the Tanya is talking to that soul, which is us. That's the playing field, the battleground. So there's this intellectual soul, if you will. There's the mind whom Tanya is talking to. And Tanya is telling him, you have these two influences. If you remember earlier in chapter one, we quoted a line from the Talmud that expressed the true difference between a tzaddik, Russia, and Benini. It said, a tzaddik is advised by the divine soul. A Russia is advised by the animal soul. A Benini is advised by both. So who's this person that's being advised? That's the third soul whom the Tanya is talking to and therefore does not mention overtly. And this middle soul is kind of like the therapist, kind of like the mediator between the two souls to try to bring them together. Let's jump to page 127. So the complete tzaddik, by the way, is super rare. Was Schneerson, was Rabbi, was Rabbi Schneerson considered a complete tzaddik? I, as one of his followers, would say so. <laughs> okay. I can't say that it doesn't sound biased, but I would say so. I, I would say people who weren't his followers, people who understood these things, but, but, but didn't, you know, would... would when, I don't know, you just listen to the descriptions of people who have spoken to him. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You know, the, Jonathan Sachs once spoke at the, at the Kinos HaShluchim, at the, at the Shluchim convention. And he said something fascinating. Who is he? Jo Jonathan Sachs. Yeah, J Jonathan Sachs was the former chief rabbi of Great Britain. Okay. Um, he's now a rabbi in Great Britain, but it, it's like a political position, I guess. So there's, there's terms. He was the chief rabbi of Great Britain. He had 
Um, he's an incredible, phenomenal speaker. Part of it's because of his accent, but he's a great speaker. Um, you check him up on YouTube when you get a chance. He's very hard to read. <laughs> yeah. He's very calm, very relaxed, but he just talks and he moves. He's quick, but he's calm. It's, he's a good speaker. He was not always um, observant. He had a Jewish identity but and identified as such, but he wasn't always a practicing Jew. He was in Cambridge University, a student in Cambridge University. He came to the United States. Um, one of their breaks, I guess it was summer break touring the United States. And one of his attractions were, you know, he was an intel he's an intellectual. He wanted to speak to great minds. And he had questions for great minds. So he set up meetings with scientists, with doctors, lawyers, professors, and had some rabbis on his list as well. And one of the rabbis on his list was the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he sets up a meeting with the Rebbe. And he has all these questions, and the Rebbe doesn't let him ask any of his questions. The Rebbe starts asking him all, all these questions. He was so confused. Like all these professors that he met and all these great minds that he met kind of enjoyed the questions. Like this person wants – but the Rebbe kind of turned the tables on him and started asking him all these questions. And one thing the Rebbe asked him was, what are you doing to help the Jewish community in Cambridge? He had no intention of being a Jewish activist. The Rebbe put him on the spot. What is? What are you? What are you doing to help the Jewish population there in Cambridge on, on campus? And he's trying to back out of it. So he says, "Well, the situation where I find myself in doesn't really." The Rebbe cuts him off, and says, "We don't find ourselves in situations. We put ourselves in situations. What are you doing to inspire the Jewish people?" And kept pushing him. Eventually. When he found his way toward uh, getting more involved in Judaism, the Rebbe actually pushed him to become a rabbi. He's not a Chabad rabbi by any means. and doesn't consider himself a Chabad rabbi, but he considers himself a person that has been deeply inspired by the Rebbe and, and learns from him. Uh, he translated a lot of the Rebbe's talks in English. So here, But here's why I say this story. So he's speaking at the, at the International Conference of Shluch. And you can check this out online. And he says... A good leader sees good in people. A great leader doesn't just see the good, but sees their potential. But a phenomenal leader has actually sees a follower, sees leaders within other people, makes other people leaders. You don't just see the good, you don't just see the potential, but you can bring out the potential and make people leaders, which was his personal experience, but the experience of many. Somebody who's inspired by a real tzaddik, a real tzaddik has that, a real tzaddik is a beacon of light in this world. You know, we're all beacons of light in this world. That's why we exist. But a tzaddik is on a whole different level because they've really internalized that soul. And we can all be beacons of light in this world. And when we connect to that tzaddik, you kind of, it's like, a, it's like a, a charger, you know, to plug you in, you know, to get that inspiration. And here's what he says, though, in the, in the Tanya, something interesting. Um, this is the bottom of 127. All the way on the bottom, the last paragraph. However, it was about the level of a complete tzaddik that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai said. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was the author of the Zohar. 
one of the earlier books on Kabbalah. He was also a contributor to the Mishnah, just to give you an idea of what time period he lived in. His Yortzeit is what we celebrate on Lagba Omer. And, and concerning this level of tzaddik, the complete tzaddik who has totally internalized the soul, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai said in the Zohar, I have seen elevated men and they are few, etc. You learn a few things from there. Number one, a complete tzaddik, there's not too many of them. <laughs> They're not a dime a dozen. But number two, a complete tzaddik are, is referred to as an elevated person. Why is a tzaddik called an elevated person? Two reasons. Because every part of them, their heart, their spirit, their mind, um, stands above, you know, all others, all other, even levels of um, incomplete tzaddiks. I mean. Okay. In other words, they're, they're not of the world, they're above the world. <laughs> okay, my notes say to me, the elevated men, they transform the evil urge of the animal soul and elevate it to holiness. Um, to do, uh, uh, they teach the, the soul to love God. Okay, good, good. So there's two reasons why they're called elevated. Number one, everything they do is to elevate this world. Now, we all have the ability to elevate this world. When I drink that cup of coffee and I get that caffeine boost to say, now I can study Torah. Now I could pray. Now I have energy to do good deeds to bring light. Now that cup of coffee became holy. I elevated it. We can elevate this world, but a tzaddik does elevate this world. And a tzaddik elevates everything that he comes in contact with because everything he does is, for, is, for, is, is elevating. Right? Even his own animal soul has been elevated. Another reason why he's called an elevated person is because everything they do is for an elevated purpose. And here's the nuanced difference between the complete tzaddik and the incomplete tzaddik. And this is going to be interesting. You'll see how we actually have a... We may have a lot more in common with the complete tzaddik than the incomplete tzaddik. It seems counterintuitive and it's ironic, but you'll soon see how. A an incomplete tzaddik. He's internalized the divine soul, but he still has a little bit of evil in him, but it's inactive. He's passionate about God. Very passionate about God. Very passionate about his relationship with God. Very motivated to do mitzvahs, to study Torah, to bring goodness and kindness to this world. The goodness and kindness that he's doing in this world, the good deeds that he's doing, are satiating his thirst for God. But the complete tzaddik is called elevated because it's not even about his own thirst for God. He is so complete in the internalization of his soul that he just sees the mission, the purpose. It's not even about his passion for God. This is what God wants. Make sense? So everything he does is for an elevated purpose because it's way beyond even in his own self, his own thirst. It's not even about quenching his thirst for God. It's just doing what God wants. Now we may have, in other words, it may be 
I, theoretically, I'm so passionate about God. I'm so passionate about truth that to do something because God wants me to do it is a challenge, right? A tzaddik, a complete tzaddik can get beyond that challenge. But what's cool is that us regular folk can also get beyond that challenge. Maybe we're not that passionate about God, right? So what's motivating me to do it, to do a mitzvah? God said to. So we have a lot in common with this complete tzaddik. We're both doing something because God said. I'll tell you a story. And this is a timely story as we're um, coming off the Passover wagon. The Baal Shem Tov, who founded the Hasidic movement about 300 years ago, wanted to make Aliyah and migrate to Israel. He made, whoop, I just lost my pet. Whoa, sorry, I just lost my pet. <laughs> Like Barbara said, the day doesn't start until coffee, right? That's right. Or for Josh, Coca-Cola. Uh, so for me, it's Diet Coke. Diet Coca-Cola. <laughs> so, oh, yuck. <laughs> so the Basimta made several attempts to travel to Israel to live there, to move there. And all of his attempts failed. Every time he tried going there, some sort of catastrophe took place flat tire, no, whatever it was, he wasn't able to make it, and he went home. He was traveling with his daughter toward Israel, and he made a stop for Passover in the town of Istanbul. Right now it's Istanbul. Back then it was Constant Constantinople. Am I pronouncing it right? Yeah, Constantinople. Yes. Constantinople. And then is it in, in Istanbul? Istanbul. Istanbul, okay, there we go. He's staying there for Passover, and his daughter, the Baal Shem Tov's daughter, was Edel. That was her name. She was a mother to Rabbi Nachman of Breslev. Many of you may be familiar with the Breslev or Hasidim. Mm -hmm. Rabbi Nachman of Breslev was, I don't remember if he's a son, a, a grandson or a great-grandson to the Baal Shem Tov, one of the two, which would mean Edel was either a grandmother or a mother to Rabbi Nachman of Breslev. They're traveling. And they stop in this town in Istanbul, which is Constantinople, and they have no, no provisions for Passover. No matzah, no wine, nothing. They're, in, they're totally unprepared. <coughs> Edel says to the Vashem Tov, Father, what are we going to do? Passover is coming up, like today. <laughs> we have our lodging, thank God, but what are we? He says, God's going to provide, don't worry. The Vashem Tov goes to the synagogue. In the meantime, there is a gentleman who is looking for the Baal Shem Tov. He says, is Rabbi Israel. Who is the Baal Shem Tov's name? His name is Israel. Israel, is he here? Where is he? Does anybody, he knew that he was in town. Somebody pointed him to the right direction. Him and his wife knock on the door in which the Baal Shem, of the house where the Baal Shem Tov and his daughter Adel are staying. Baal Shem Tov's not there. He's at the synagogue. Adel answers the door. How can I help you? I heard that the Baal Shem Tov is staying here. My wife and I would like to join you guys for the holiday. We got matzah, we got wine, we got food, we got fish, we got meat, we got the maror, we got the charesa, we got it all. She says, okay, good. <laughs> Sounds good, you're in. Baal Shem Tov comes back from the synagogue and is all excited. Beautifully set table with all the food and all the provisions that they needed. God came through and provided. 
Now, the reason why this couple wanted to have their Seder together with the Baal Shem Tov and made the effort to go out of their way to go to the Baal Shem Tov was because these, this couple was childless. They needed a child. They wanted a child. And they were having... It, they couldn't... Uh, she couldn't get pregnant for whatever reason. I don't know what the reason was. But they wanted to seek the Baal Shem Tov's counsel. They wanted a blessing from the Baal Shem Tov. Baal Shem Tov would give out blessings. And his blessings were worth gold. <laughs> Baal Shem Tov blessed them with a child. And they gave it, they were, they were, a child was born to them within the year, within nine months, whatever the story was. But the Bashemtov was informed that in the heavens they were not supposed to have a child. And the Bashemtov somehow gave them that child, enabled for them, pleaded with God, whatever it was, enabled them to get that child nonetheless. And as a result, the Bashemtov was informed that he lost his portion of Olam Haba, his portion in paradise, his portion in the world to come. Right? It says in the Mishnah, every, every person has a portion in the world to come. And he lost his portion in the world to come. He forfeited it for this couple. And at first he was kind of down. He was kind of upset. Like, is that worth it? Then he realized, no, I'm super excited. He was so happy because he said, now, if I'm going to do a mitzvah, what's motivating me? It's not my reward. God told me to do it. He was so excited that he now has the opportunity to serve God, not because of what he's going to get from God, but just because that's what God wants from him. A complete tzaddik has the spiritual maturity to overlook the passion that he has for God and just focus on God. Now, we're not a complete tzaddik, but we can still accomplish that because we don't always feel that passionate. And sometimes our relationship with God is just centered around the fact that God wants us to do it. In a sense, it's more similar. We have a lot more in common with the complete tzaddik than we do with the incomplete tzaddik. Because we don't have that passion, if you will, obstructing. I got it. Right? Makes sense? <laughs> I got it. In other words, very often in a, rela in a relationship, it, it, relationships tend to be self-centered. What do I get from this relationship? And in order to be altruistic in a relationship, you could take one of two routes. You could have that maturity, that spiritual maturity in the case of a relationship with God or in any relationship, have that maturity that it takes to not focus on what I'm receiving from the relationship, but focus on the relationship itself. Or realize I'm not getting anything from this relationship anyways in terms of how I feel. And I'm still going to do it. Often we don't feel the passion, the inspiration that comes from lighting Shabbos candles. We don't feel the passion, inspiration that comes from keeping kosher, from praying, whatever it is. It takes work to feel it, but when we don't feel it, so no, now that the, re the relationship is truly altruistic, because it centers around just God wants me to do this. 
Make sense? Yes. Okay. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> uh, well, I thank you so much for this lecture. I, I appreciate your little inspirational talks on Facebook. Oh, thank you. I get, I don't always look at